Wells Fargo presents one of the surest ways to grow your money. A Wells Fargo CD account where you can earn a 5.00% annual percentage yield on an 11-month term with a minimum opening deposit of $5,000. Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com backslash CD rates to open a CD account and start growing your savings with us. Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is the show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is a journalist, think tanker, and the author of The Road to Somewhere, David Goodhart. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. Good to have you here. It's good uh, to be here. Thank you for coming. Uh, the question we always like to ask at the beginning is, how are you where you are? What's been your journey through life? Uh, have there been any kind of things in your life that have informed the work that you do and the, the views that you now hold? Uh, yes. I mean, my entire life, I guess, has uh, helped to inform the views I have. Um, I came from a very, very privileged background. My father was a Conservative MP. I went to a very grand public school. Um, combination of those two things meant you know growing up in the uh, you know in the kind of 70s that inevitably I became a leftist um, and um, at university was really pretty pretty radical so I so I think I kind of understand some of the kind of mentality of the the attractions indeed of um, of the kind of holistic worldview of kind of Islamism or Marxism or whatever uh, indeed I found being a Marxist for a few years in my late teens, early 20s, um, was enormously intellectually productive in some ways because of the the kind of um, the kind of intellectual vanity of Marxism. You have to be an expert or pretend to be an expert on everything. You know, you have to kind of have a theory on everything. Um, so it's quite good training for kind of journalism and think tank world. Um, but I kind of gradually read my read my way out of um, the the more kind of silly and extreme views that I had. Uh, at that time, um, but I, rem- I mean, I consider myself to be very much on the centre left for, I guess, most of my adult life. Um, I, um, after university, I became a local newspaper journalist, uh, where I'd been at university in York, um, and then rather accidentally ended up on the Financial Times in the ni- early 1980s, which was wonderful training. Uh, the FT then was one of the last big institutions to believe in the generalist principle. You know, you did a subject for two or three years and then you moved on to a completely different subject, um, a bit like the higher reaches of the civil service. Mm. Um, and I covered uh, the last, uh, I was a labor reporter covering the last great disputes against the Thatcher government in the early 80s, early mid 80s, then moved on to talking about, uh, writing about big uh, company takeovers. And I then had the very good fortune of going to Germany um, just before unification. And um, uh, that was a, a fantastic experience. And it was that that uh, I, I didn't, you know, that kind of, in a way, sort of turned my head. I didn't really, having covered a world historic event, I didn't fancy going back to the FT and beca- you know spending the next 10 or 15 years becoming features editor or whatever I might have been. Um, so I decided to set up a magazine. I set up a magazine called Prospect, monthly current affairs magazine, really based on the, sort of modelled on the, the American magazines like like the Atlantic Monthly and New York Review of Books and the New Yorker and Harper's. I'm not, obviously, we weren't going to be exactly like them. Um, we were going to be a much smaller fry thing, but um, <clears throat> it was like that, the kind of the lack of a proper essay uh, essay writing culture here in our journalism that I hope to do something about. Um, and uh, I did that for 15 years from 95 to 2015. Um, and intellectually in, the, in that time, I mean, Prospect had started off very much as sort of, it started off in the mid 90s, was seen very much as a part of the kind of new labourish world of, um, um, you know, we were just coming to that end of that long period of conservative rule. And we were not political with a capital P, but we were kind of happy enough to be sort of go along with that sort of reformist um, zeitgeist. Um, but we then, or I anyway, developed a, a kind of 
um, uh, critique of aspects of contemporary liberalism, particularly on issues of uh, race and multiculturalism um, and immigration. And I, uh, I, I wrote a long essay in 2004, it was February 2004, I think, called Too Diverse? Question mark. really aimed very much at the centre-left, which I still considered then my political home, uh, essentially saying, look, th th there is a kind of, it was quite an abstract philosophical argument um, saying about the tension between the left's two favourite principles, in a way, the principle of solidarity and the principle of di diversity, and based on the common sense idea that people are readier to to share with and to trust people who they're familiar with and that they know and they have some reciprocal experiences with. Um, based on that common sense assumption, you know, I, I argued that um, it was an, an increasingly diverse society, not just through immigration, but through kind of all, you know, the much greater um, moral diversity, um, value diversity of modern societies. It was it was harder to hold on to that that sense of kind of common identity across across a much more varied range of people, mm. um, and therefore it was much harder to persuade people to to share their resources and and um, have a degree of trust in each other, which any any decent society I think requires. Anyway, um, th this essay was about six thousand words, but it was printed. Um, word for word, almost in the Guardian. Um, I mean, with our permission, obviously, I was thrilled that the Guardian wanted to reprint it. Um, but it, but it caused quite a, quite a kind of uh, a little kind of hullabaloo. I was. Oh, really? What a surprise! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this was two thousand and four. It was two thousand and four. Well, this was a yeah, conversation yeah. anyone was willing to have at that time. No, no, much. it was it was a little bit ahead of its time, um, and and so I was duly described as a kind of nice racist. You know, even nice people do racism. Um, uh, but How can you be a but, nice uh, racist? <laughs> well, um, I think you know the kind of prospect was seen as this rather sort of genteel intellectual magazine, yeah. um, and uh, you know Gary Young, and actually even uh, even Trevor Phillips uh, had a go at us. Although it was it was a, it, there obviously was a bit of a cusp moment then because it was about, I don't think there was any cause and effect. I wouldn't claim that, but a, a couple of weeks later. Trevor gave an interview, a famous interview to the Times, in which he himself was very critical of multiculturalism, um, thought that it is essentially kind of overstretched, and um, and that it was now more important to worry about about you know what we what we have in common rather than always stressing um, you know, the you know the importance of of separate identities, which is what multiculturalism had been had been primarily doing. Let me interject yeah. for our international viewers. Trevor Phillips uh, used to be the head of the Human Rights and Equalities Commission, uh, and he's black as well, as, as it happens. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so that, um, uh, I, I mean, I, I sort of stumbled into this um, territory without really having thought very much. You know, I kind of bought the package. You know, I was a kind of liberal, so of course I was in favour of high levels of immigration. I never really sort of thought about it. Um, and... Um, um, but that started to sort of change my worldview to some extent, or partly the reaction to it, and and I also then started to think about it a lot, these issues a lot more, and read about them. And I kept getting invited to sort of seminars and conferences. And I was uh, the, the BBC were quite keen on me for a while because this really was still a time when it was quite hard to talk about um, sort of greater restrictions on immigration without being considered. Um, you know, suspect on race in some way. Um, I mean, the two things I think are now much more separated. I mean, the, you know, issues of racial justice, which which are real, um, and the kind of economic and and cultural issues associated with large scale immigration. Um, I think we now partly because of the um, the immigration from Central and Eastern Europe since two thousand and four five um, has made it easier to, to to separate out the two issues. Which is a good thing. I mean, I do think that uh, the, the the debate has become um, more open and honest in some ways since since that time. Um, but I think it's. I mean, I mean, becoming interested in the subject did did cause me, as it were, to sort of question some of my, the kind of liberal assumptions that I had made earlier, and 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 I did sort of feel myself kind of drifting away from. From the liberal tribe, as it were, um, and I mean, I think it was partly um, 
you know, partly realising both that my own instincts and the instincts of many of my fellow citizens were were much more sort of communitarian, um, to put it like to, to to put it no stronger, um, and much less sort of individualist universalist, which is the sort of the sort of the default position of so many kind of liberal-minded graduates, um, even those on the left. Um, they tend to um, they tend to be very suspicious of sort of group attachments and group group identities. They they tend to see them as inherently kind of hostile to the other, which I don't think is either logically or historically necessary. Although it clearly has sometimes been true. Um, I mean, of course, the, the the left tends to be hypocritical about group uh, feelings in that it privileges some and denigrates others, as it were. I mean, so so. The left is still groupist when it comes to social class, um, or at least the kind of you know more sort of serious left, old left, if you like. Um, but um, very very suspicious of groups when it comes to ethnicity or you know or, or, or nation even, um, and you know see certain kinds of groups as um, uh, you know in, inherently sort of unreasonable in a way. Um, so Not toxic, in fact. Yeah, um, but but I think it was it was it was kind of coming at the so so, my, so I you know as sort of populism began to emerge as a, as a subject, um, I think I had um, a kind of understanding, uh, you know, even to some extent, a kind of sympathy with some of the feelings that um, the people had about about rapid social change, mm-hmm. and it seemed to be completely reasonable that people were pushing back against um, rapid changes to neighborhoods and ways of life and 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 it was the, the, the this idea that is really something that has been um, it's it's really an idea that Eric Kaufman has made his own who I think uh, I think you've interviewed him already um, this idea of asymmetrical multiculturalism the fact that um, you know, multiculturalism was a, is based around the importance of ethnicity to human beings, um, but uh, only regards it somehow as being important to ethnic minorities in in white European societies, uh, and that it's almost a kind of it's almost a kind of Orientalism in relation to white people, as if white people are kind of not really. They've kind of transcended ordinary human feelings in some <laughs> magical way, and don't have ethnic feelings too, like minority people do. Um, now, of course, it's the case that um, majority ethnicities are different in some ways to minority ethnicities. Yes, you know, you, you know, if it's your society, you know, people like you, kind of generally speaking, have more power than at least relatively new arrivals, who are obviously bound to generally have less status and and. And um, power in the society, um, at least for a generation or two. Um, so I'm not saying that they're exactly identical, but um, um, we have, you know, we have clearly seen the limits of asymmetrical multiculturalism in, in recent years. When and people have pushed back against um, what they see as kind of um, infringements on on. Um, what they thought was their sort of entitlement to a relatively settled life. Now, you know, the, the modern world is is pretty unsettling in many ways, um, but politics holds out the promise. I mean, modern politics, modern democratic politics, and, and I think we forget just how recent, really properly democratic societies we've we've been. I mean, how, in, in, I mean, how... how Relatively recently, I mean, we had sort of formal democracy. Where we didn't have universal franchise what till the end of the nineteen twenties. Um, but but you had the kind of you have the hangovers of the attitudes of previous eras in in kind of deference and um, um, and uh, you know respect for elites and um, uh, and I think it's really only in the last sort of twenty or thirty or forty years you might say that um, that. People have come into their full democratic in, inheritance, um, and are you know are, are you know are ready to kind of use the the extraordinary you know equality that the, the you know political equality that democracy offers 
um, in order to try and resist some of the, um, the you know, the, perhaps the, ne the, 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 the necessary creative destruction and upheavals of modern dynamic market economies. You know, to try and you know, to try and sort of almost you know hold the society within the bounds of that old. Um, left slogan of your or sort of centre left slogan anyway, sort of yes to a market economy, but no to a market society, um, which I always thought was rather an attractive way of putting it in some ways, um, and and I, and I think um, you know a, a lot of populism you might say is part of that sort of push push back against a market society, um, including in its sort of demographic and immigration-related aspects. Like the idea that everything is about the economy, so that's why we tend to have this conversation yeah. about immigration, yeah, yeah. strictly through the lens of the economy, yeah. right? So if, it, and I'm an immigrant myself, by the way, but it's just, mm. I, it blows my mind that no one seems to ever really want to talk about the cultural side of it, you know, mm. the, the fact mm. that this constant churn and change also yeah. has an impact on people's lives, which they're frankly, you know, uh, this is what Eric and Matt told us about it. 70% of Leave voters say they'd be prepared to lose out financially if it meant reducing immigration. And 35% of them say they'd be able to be, they'd be prepared to lose out significantly right, if yeah. it meant reducing immigration to zero. Right. right yeah. So people clearly don't just measure no, exactly, the success yeah. or failure of immigration based on the economy. No, people don't. And yet we always talk about it strictly in those terms, at least in the yeah, public domain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think the whole point of of the politics that we've been seeing in the last five or ten years, the the the, the new kind of instability, or, or I, I mean, I, I like to think of it as a kind of rebalancing, you know, where there's there's been a, a pushback against the dominant liberalism, both economic and social and cultural liberalism, of the last thirty years. Now, I mean, I think most of us, I'm, I'm certainly not against all of all of what liberalism has done, either economically or socially and culturally. I mean, I think that. There have been there have been great advances um, in many ways. And, you know, we've had the the great um, the great liberalisation in on race, on gender, on sexuality, um, much of which I think you know, has has been a great human advance. I mean, we've taken seriously the the um, the, the, the that that. The, the kind of the idea of human moral equality, which only really became, I mean, you know, like democracy, it's a remarkably recent idea, at least an idea that is, you know, properly grounded in our in our laws and constitutions. I mean, it wasn't really until the UN Declaration of of, of Rights in when was it 1948 that that this idea did become commonplace, at least in Western liberal democracies, the idea of of human equality, human moral equality. Um, and of course, again, we had hangovers from earlier eras. You know, older generations um, found it kind of difficult to adjust. I mean, I think it's one of the things that that lies behind uh, 1968. I mean, particularly in Germany, for obvious reasons, but in France too. You know, the, the kind of the young, um, egalitarian-minded, mainly lefty students were were saying, "Look, you know, we, we've now got these laws that that say that we're all equal, but you know." But you know, but the older generation are not are not behaving as if uh, uh, as if those laws were on the statute books. Um, so, and they had something sort of to beat the older generation with. They had a kind of you know they had a a, a, a righteousness. David, let's dig into how that happened because you talk yeah. about this in your book, and you've come up with a way of categorizing the different groups in society who mm -hmm. are engaged in this contest, which. I think quite a lot of people are now relying on as the underpinning of their work. So tell us a little bit about the somewheres and anywheres. Yeah, I mean, it's it's looking at value groups rather than social class as the sort of, as the new kind of motors of of politics. Um, obviously, there's some overlap, but um, yeah, but very broadly, um, what I'm talking about is the, is the switch from a from society, from a society in which politics is primarily socio-economic, in which social class are the basic units, and the issues are to do with kind of market versus state, and size of the state, and levels of public spending, and and redistribution, and so on, um, to much more socio-cultural issues to do with um, uh, identity, to do with borders, immigration, uh, nation states. Um, and um, you know, security versus liberty issues in relation to terrorism, um, to gender equality issues, and how those are playing out. Um, so these these kind of socio-cultural issues have become um, the kind of central currency of 
of contemporary politics. Um, and um, that is, um, and that's produced new sort of groupings. Um, and I think, you know, value, value groups have become um, as important, if not more important, than social class groups. Um, and yes, in my book, The Road to Somewhere, I talked about two in particular, um, the, the two, kind of two big ones that almost sort of, you might say, are kind of analogous with, with kind of middle class and working class in the older formulations. Um, the people that see the world from anywhere and the people see the world from somewhere. And the, and the anywheres are um, about 20, 25% of the population, perhaps a little bit more in different countries. I think this applies across most of the developed world, by the way, or, or it plays out differently in different places. Uh, so anywheres tend to be um, highly educated, at, you know, at least um, an undergraduate degree, sometimes postgraduate uh, qualifications of one kind or another. Um, so educated and mobile, generally mobile, and particularly in this country because of residential universities, where people from whatever their social class background tend to, you know, leave leave home and their hometown usually at the age of eighteen and go off to you know 100, 150 miles away to college and often never never return to live at least in in where they came from and and you you socialize with a with a with with an entirely new group often um, and um, you're kind of you're, you're cut off from the group of people that you went to school with often and your your kind of local hometown friends this is much less true, by the way, in most other countries. It is a peculiarly. I think it's one of the reasons why some of these value divides are particularly acute in this country. Um, half of American students live with their parents. Um, most most student most middle class students. Many of the elites in continental Europe uh, come here to university or go to America. But um, most most ordinary middle class kids in Germany will go to the their local town university. So you get a more of a kind of blending. You know, you're more likely to you know if you even if you become a kind of upper professional, you're more likely to know somebody who's a plumber or an electrician. Mm. In this country, you have a much greater apartheid as a result of of uh, well, residential universities combined with London too. I think the London effect tends to. How much do you think the class system plays into that as well? Because we are we are very structured by class. I mean, Oxford is a perfect, and the Oxbridge are a perfect example of this. Uh, we we we've, we we kind of preserve more of the external trappings of class in sort of accent, and we preserved our private schools and so on. But we're actually not that different to most other developed countries. Um, uh, I mean, I think we, we we kind of we focus on 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 the trappings as do foreigners when they kind of observe us. Um, but 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 all countries have their elite institutions, um, and most of those elite institutions are full of kids from mainly elite backgrounds. You know, whether the the you know the kind of anarchs in France, you know, the the um, what are they called? All those école supérieure normale, uh, all those, uh, uh, or the you know the Ivy League universities in America. I mean, everybody has them. Um, um, and it may be that because of private schools, we, we I mean, ours are, are somewhat less meritocratic. I mean, you can kind of argue about that. Um, but yes, I mean, there, there, there is an overlap. Um, there's an overlap between my value groups and social class, but they are different. Um, so you, you, you get, uh, you know, you get odd you get sort of social class mixes and indeed, and indeed sort of ideological mixes. So you might have an any, you know, a typical anywhere might be a very um, uh, internationally minded, you know, management consultant, speaks three or four languages, um, um, pro, you know, perhaps from, could be from a middle, middle class background or could, could be from any background really. I mean, so, you know, someone who's done well, you know, you know, passed exams when young, went to a more or less good university, had a, and has now has a successful professional career, um, but might have very kind of free market views on economics, um, where you know somebody who is a, e equally anywhere in their in their kind of socio-cultural um, worldview, but is um, you know an extremely left-wing sociology. Professor or whatever, yeah. um, you know, but they're both anywheres um, uh, because they, they they share the, the, that those basic you know 
they've embraced much. I mean, the, the, the left-wing sociology professor will obviously be critical of some aspect of, uh, of the economic liberalism of the last 30 or 40 years, but they will both be very comfortable in the modern world. I mean, they're, they're both... Um, I mean, and the, I mean the, the, you know, what anywheres share, despite potential disagreements over economic, um, economic um, policy, is, is you know they, they believe in openness, they believe in, in autonomy, they tend to be highly individualistic, they tend to be comfortable with social change, they can surf, they're, they're comfortable with social fluidity, and they have what the American sociologist Tolkien Parsons called achieved identities. He oh. talked, um, he's an incredibly boring sociologist, but <laughs> he did come up with this very useful um, um, idea of this uh, thinking about human identity on a spectrum between achieved and ascribed. Oh. So we all have a mix of the two, but for any people from highly educated backgrounds who are kind of mobile and sort of individualistic in their life path, uh, tend to have achieved identities, like I say, the, the, the kind of people who've passed exams and gone to good universities and have, have solid professional careers, they tend to think of themselves as the sort of consequence of their own achievements in some ways. Um, and, and obviously that's only very partly true, but um, it means your identity is more sort of, more kind of portable um, you know, you can take it anywhere. It's customizable as well. Yeah, yeah you can fit in. You know, you're, you, you're happy living in the kind of edgy inner city in Tower Hamlets, surrounded by Bangladeshi people, you know, British Bangladeshis or whatever. You're, um, because you have a sort of sense of yourself that's derived from your previous uh, life achievements. So um, these people make up about 20, 25% yeah, of the 20, population. Yeah, 20, 25% of the population, yeah. And the somewheres, I mean, just staying on the identity thing, somewheres tend to have identities that are more ascribed, i.e. things about you you can't really change. I mean, you, um, you know, I'm white, male, British. Um, but, you know, you could, I don't know, you could be a Scottish farmer or a working-class Geordie, or obviously you can change your class, but, um, but you know, you're, if your identity is mainly ascribed, to you, then you, your identity is derived from your the place that you come from and the groups that you belong to. Um, some of which, obviously, you can't change. Some of which you can, um, and therefore, I think it's much. You know, if if you so somewhere's more. You know, just doing my more general spiel on no. somewhere. Somewhere's um, unlike anywhere's tend to be much more rooted. Tend to be much less well educated. Tend to value the things that. You would expect people with more from more rooted backgrounds to value security, familiarity, and so on. Um, but also, just looping back to the identity idea, they're, they're, having a mainly ascribed identity means that your identity is very much tied in with the places and groups that you come from. So if those places and groups change, mm. your identity is much more susceptible to being discomforted by social change. So I think the two really important differences between the anywhere and the somewhere worldview and the anywhere and somewhere people is that, you know, like anywheres are comfortable with social change and somewheres, I mean, obviously some somewheres can be, but I mean, obviously I'm generalizing, I'm talking in averages. Most somewheres, you know, are more likely to see change as loss, partly because they're, through being less well-educated, they're less well-equipped to, to, uh, to, 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 to achieve well in the in the modern world, uh, so they're more likely to see. But the other the other big thing, so it's attitude to social change and attitude to group attachment. Anywheres, like like we were talking about earlier, um, anywheres tend to uh, be rather suspicious uh, of group attachment, even ra rather look down upon it. Um, whereas to some ways, it's a, it's an you know, it's an important sort of emotional sustenance to their lives often. Uh, not always. So I think that those are the two big differences, and it's um, uh, and um, I've invented those labels, in, and they, they rather caught on. I mean, it's the, and why the book did quite well, I think, um, is that they seem to they seem to be quite useful ways of looking at the modern world, uh, thinking through that, thinking of the world being divided between anywheres and somewheres. Um, but it does, you know, a lot of the critics of the book sort of said, you know, how how sort of simplistic and binary. Um, 
and actually, if you read the book, you'll find it's not that binary. I mean, the, these are big, baggy groupings, as I said earlier, a bit like kind of working class and middle class. We don't, no one goes around sort of saying, oh, well, that's far too binary. We kind of understand mm. that they don't necessarily say a huge amount about you, but they kind of give a kind of general fix on yes. on somebody. Um, and um, and they kind of, you know, they sort of work in a rough and ready way. Um, Obviously, yeah, there are all sorts of different kinds of anywheres. Um, you know, I mean, I have all sorts of subsets. There are all sorts of different kinds of somewhere. So, you know, the kind of high end of the anywheres, uh, there is a group, about three, five percent of the population who want, who are who are real kind of global villages. I mean, the kind of you know citizens of nowhere that Theresa May talked about. Um, and then at the bottom end of the somewheres, you might, you know, again, on the sort of value spectrum, see people who are who are genuine. Authoritarians and xenophobes, perhaps three, five percent of the population, perhaps a bit more on some issues. Um, and there's also a big in-betweener group, um, uh, a group who share almost equally the kind of the, the value worldview of the anywheres and the value worldview of the somewheres. Now, like I said, I invented the labels, but I didn't. I mean, that these these value groups really are there. In the data, as the academics like to say. Well, of course, otherwise the labels would be useless. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, but I mean, well, a lot of people have questioned them. But I mean, if you look at the British Social Attitude Service, I mean, it's not written down there, you know, anywhere's, you know. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But but if you kind of interrogate the, you know, know, the the British Social Attitudes have been asking people about a whole range of things, including in this whole social, socio-cultural area for 35, 40 years, Um, and so you know, you can see the evolution. Of, of these values and ideas, and the anywhere group is growing very rapidly. I mean, this is you know one of the one of the reasons for the political um, instability and uncertainty of more recent times is that um, it's kind of un- the, the growth partly through the expansion of higher education and higher education, particularly humanities and social sciences, are kind of engines for creating anywheres in some ways, and um, they have. Um, you, know, you have to go about only about 30 or 40 years and perhaps the, the anywhere, the people who would have self-consciously ascribed to a kind of anywhere worldview would have been 5-10% of the population. Mm. It's now three, four times that. And, and, and another reason for the... For the, for the and, and that's kind of unbalanced thing. Uh, it's unbalanced society in some ways. Um, well, this is what I was going to ask. Yeah. Let's get right into it. Yeah. Because... This is all absolutely fascinating, and our viewers will be enjoying this. But if we make this theoretical conversation a little bit more practical, and we look at what's been happening in Western Mm. developed societies over the last two or three years, particularly, I mean, it's obviously part of a much longer process, but if we look at what's happening now, is it essentially a question of the fact that the anywheres have been the ruling caste for a good period of time, and uh, somewheres are rebelling? Yeah, that's essentially it. It's it's a rebalancing. Uh, to push back against uh, anywhere over domination, and I think anywheres, you know, and, and well, we can come on to solutions later. But um, uh, I think anywheres have often been oblivious of their power. They haven't realised that they are, you know, only a quarter or at most a third of the society, and they have assumed. I mean, you know, often with the best of motives, they've assumed that they have been. Um, acting in the in the general interest when they've actually been helping to shape a society that is overwhelmingly inter- in the interests of people like them who have had their kind of backgrounds who are highly educated. You know, we, you know, one can go through the list of, uh, you know, the the knowledge economy. You know, I mean, the very phrase suggests that this is an economy that works best for pe- people who are highly educated. Uh, you've had rapid deindustrialization in other areas. Um, you've you've had. Um, Meaning, um, it, it's 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 become harder for large sections. Of the but what you've had too, something I didn't emphasise in the road to somewhere, but I, but it's actually something I'm working on now uh, for for another book. The way in which cognitive ability has become the kind of gold standard of human esteem is also a very recent thing. Um, there were there was a place for people who were not. Um, uh, highly able cognitively. Cognitive ability is just one quite narrow form of human aptitude and um, the way both in economics and indeed in in, in education policy, I mean, the, the massive expansion of, of higher education in this country at least, the continuing neglect of, of technical and vocational education um, uh, you know, is it, another area of kind of unconscious anywhere domination. Um, 
but but I think I think underpinning all of it is the way in which we've sort of we've kind of tilted the balance away from other forms of human aptitude um, and people who um, who felt that they had a that, that, that they had meaningful lives um, uh, what, what, what I'm increasingly realizing is that actually you know look, looking I mean we'll, we'll come on to the present in a minute but I mean looking macro historically if you think of uh, we, we think of industrial the transition from an agrarian to an industrial oh. society as a as a as a kind of ghastly violent phys- physically um, uh, violent process as people poured into the kind of teeming industrial cities and and for a short period of time it was pretty dreadful although pretty well from the beginning actually longevity and and uh, an income and, and and pretty well everything um, uh, rose pretty rapidly um, but um, what we sort of forget about the transition is actually how much continuity there was. It did not, the, the, the process of industrialization in the 19th century did not um, undermine traditional religious beliefs. Indeed, it created new forms of Christianity, Methodism, Wesleyism in the big, big, in the big industrial cities. Uh, it did not undermine the family. Uh, rates of illegitimacy fell pretty radically in, through the 19th century. Uh, no, I mean, life was compared to today. Like, obviously, life is pretty hard for most people. Um, but you know, but you know, bring bring it forward to the twentieth century and um, combine it with democracy and welfare states. Um, and bear in mind also that industrial society produced new forms of of meaning um, and identity through, particularly for men, through skilled and semi skilled industrial employment. Um, you compare that to the shift from an industrial to a post-industrial society, which is kind of what we're, what we're living through now. Um, and I think you see how um, lots of traditional f- sources of meaning have, have been destroyed. Um, I mean, are the, the, you know, anywhere cultural, uh, the, the kind of cultural hegemony of the anywhere classes uh, has tended to be very secular, um, has tended to be very liberal, um, has tended to, and has tended, as I said, to to focus very much on one form of human aptitude, that of cognitive ability. And if you don't, you know, if you don't get through the bottleneck, um, you know, if you're not an exam passer when you're young, and you don't get into the the kind of higher into the A level stream, and then into a, a good university. These days, not even any university, but really, it has to be a good university. Um, We've narrowed the kind of source of, of human esteem and, and meaning mm. to that outcome. And if you think of all the all the kind of institutions that give you meaning and recognition unconditionally, you know, like religion itself is fading away. The family has obviously been under great pressure um, in in recent generations, um, and then you know other you know like institutions that you know like the the big industrial factory, the, 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 the military, you know, the institutions that provided roles and, and meaning and usefulness to millions and millions of people who didn't necessarily thrive um, academically or, or cognitively. And so I think, um, I think this is a kind of, this is a sort of underlying explanation, I think, for a lot of the, um, it's, the it's the kind of arrogance of the cognitive elites who have decided that, um, um, that their that their sort of their form of aptitude um, is uh, is the one that should should hold sway, and and without I mean they haven't they haven't intentionally downgraded other forms of aptitude, but I think you know whether it's sort of technical manual um, uh, functions or or sort of caring. The, the caring economy, you know, we, we pay lip service to the to the to the wonderful nurses or social care workers, but we pay them absolutely dreadfully, and um, and uh, we you know we continue to um, we continue to uh, 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 the, the other thing about the kind of anywhere worldview, it's very very public realm focused, you know, it's about work and politics and public life. But actually, for most people, the, the most important things in life are in the private realm. It's wow. you know, it's your kind of private life and your family life and things like that. And we and, uh, and I think we hugely under sort of un- underestimate the important. That's one of the reasons why so many of the caring jobs are jobs that used to be done 
in the emotional economy of the family by women overwhelmingly uh, for free, um, you know, in our grandmother's generation. Um, many of those jobs are now done outside the home, but partly for that reason, partly because they used to be done for free in, inside the family, they're somehow they're, they're held in, in relatively low esteem. But I think that's a more, a more general function of holding the... that anywhere tend to hold the private realm. I mean, you see this in modern feminism, which is a very, very you know, tends to be very dominated by kind of upper professional anywhere women, um, you know, the kind of Nicky Morgans and Harriet Harmons, um, tend to have a uh, tend to not have a very uh, keen interest in the private realm. I mean, they they see that as kind of belonging to women's past in some ways. And the important thing now is, you know, is is being able to compete equally with men in the in the public realm. But I, I mean, I think you know, if you, if you kind of look at opinion data and things like that, um, that doesn't seem to be a view that is that is shared by most women in Britain. Um, I mean, obviously, most women in Britain want to be able to compete equally with men in the public realm, but they want to place much greater influence than much of modern feminism does on on the private realm of the family. And being able to stay at home when your children are very young for two or three years, um, many many women and indeed some men would like to do that, um, but it's almost it's become almost impossible for most for most families to be able to afford to do that. And we have no support for in the tax system, or very, very minimal support in the tax system for for families. Um, David, let me pause yes. you there because yeah. I can see that Francis, yeah. he's yeah. been wanting to jump in for about 20 minutes, yeah. but he's far too British to interrupt. Yeah. That's the thing. So yeah. I'll be the foreigner here and go right, and, sorry. and yeah, create yeah, yeah, that yeah. opportunity. I think you've touched on something because I was a teacher for 10 years and, right, yeah. right, and I taught in primary, I taught in secondary and I taught in deprived communities. Right. And I think you've really touched on something there about the anyways. And I, I pretty much am an anywhere, but I think it's the arrogance mm. of the anywhere. And I think it's their idea that they know best. And mm. we saw that with Brexit, where mm. all the anywheres went, what a surprise, everyone voted for Brexit. And it's like, no, you weren't listening. Mm. And mm. I've seen it more and more and more, how in education, unless you subscribe to these sets of values, unless you are mm. you know, good at essentially taking information, regurgitating mm. it, you are thrown on the scrap heap, mm. metaphorically. Mm. And I, one question I want to ask you is, at the moment it feels we're polarised. Mm. How do we bridge that gap? It, can we do it? Or mm. is a sense because of technology and because of the way the, the education system is that essentially the gap is going to grow wider and wider? Um, I think we can bridge the gap. Um, I mean, I mean, with some difficulty. I mean, it's the... the, the the purpose of politics is to bridge the gap in a way. I mean, that is what most, you know, that, that is what good politicians should be focusing upon. I mean, that's what, um, you know, politics is, is in a sense always at base about trying to, trying to bring conflicting um, views and, and, and indeed conflicting interests together in, to, to some degree or, or finding compromises that allows, um, uh, allows different groups to to, to, to function relatively happily together in the same society. Um, uh, I mean, I think, obviously, that, you know, obviously Brexit didn't create these divisions. These divisions sort of emerged partic particularly strongly over the last 20 or 30 years in response to um, both, the, both the cultural arrogance but also the over-domination that we talked about earlier. But, and, 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 the, and one manifestation of that overdomination, whether it's in the field of, of the economy, whether it's in the field of, um, of, of education, the massive overexpansion of higher education, whether it's in um, uh, you know, whether it's in, in the in the kind of almost the delegitimization of many small c conservative views mm. and tradition, you know, kind of you know male breadwinner. I mean, you know, I mean, lots of men, you know, for for the last couple of centuries have have got out of bed in the morning essentially. Because they feel the responsibility of being a breadwinner. Now, for perfectly good reasons, in some cases, that has that has gone, or has become less important, um, because women have become much more autonomous, which is a good thing on the whole. I mean, my my mother just kind of missed out on on kind of mainstream modern feminism and um, and um, f and and c c suffered for that in many ways. Um, and you know wasn't wasn't able to to live 
the, the same sort of um, wasn't able to be as fulfilled as as her as her as her daughters and granddaughters. Um, um, but um, you know, so in in all these different areas, I mean, quite large minorities, if not majorities, um, of our society have have not have not felt you know this whole kind of um, you know left v right has been replaced by open v closed is incredibly self serving way of looking at the world. I mean, I've never met anyone who wants to live in a closed gulag like society nobody does obviously uh, but a lot of people feel that the forms of modern openness that we've created in the last 30 years you know, i mean i mean symbolized most graphically by you know the supply chain going to china um you know the rapid industrial deindustrialization of 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 britain america even more so perhaps um um, or, or part, parts of Britain, and um, and symbolised also by large-scale immigration, and that you know, the kind of double whammy, the feeling that you know your, your factory closes and goes to probably not China, out to Vietnam or Cambodia or somewhere, um, but then a, a whole new workforce is introduced into the country to compete with you in the service jobs that you're probably then doing. Um, came as a real uh, shock to people, I think. And most of those people, it's, it's so important to emphasize this uh, you know, against the contempt of much modern liberalism, most of those people are not hostile to the individual immigrant. Mm. They're anti-immigration, they're not anti-immigrant. I mean, it's, a, it's an illusion that liberals often make, you know, such and such, you know, the anti-immigrant party, the anti-immigrant politician. Well, there are some, uh, but most of the time people are hostile to the immigration and not the immigrant. You know, people who work in fish finger factories in Hull probably go out to, to drink after work with the, with the Pole or Slovenian they're working beside. They're not hostile to the individual. That doesn't mean to say they think it's in their economic or cultural interests to have had that movement of people on such a large scale. Clearly, it is very much part of the kind of, you know, the, the liberal market system. And it's, it's one part of it that has not on the whole benefited people. And so people have rightly pushed back against it. So how can we resolve this, which but, is what Francis yeah. is getting at? Because our time is almost right. out. What are mm. some of the potential ways of... Well, I mean, I, th I think a lot of the emphasis um, is on um, uh, a lot of the responsibility for this. Um, we, we know we've had anywhere liberal overreach um, in, many, in many aspects of our societies. Um, and we need and and that, and anyways need to be more emotionally intelligent about the extent of their domination. Um, um, they need to. I mean, and you're seeing this already. You're sort of seeing the kind of anywhere classes. I think dividing between the kind of admonished anywheres, you know, the kind of Theresa Mays who are sort of who are, who are, who are sort of saying, oh, you know, it's true, we didn't really listen to people, and we bloody well should have done. You know, otherwise we wouldn't have ended up with Brexit. You know, that this is our fault in many yes. ways. Um, and then you've got the kind of militant anywheres, you know, the AC Graylings and Oliver Cams who are sort of saying, you know, we're, you know, they are the barbarians, you know, we are the, we are the decent civilized people. Um, I think you are seeing that division. I mean, I think, uh, and I think and hope obviously that the kind of admonished liberals anywheres will, will win that argument. Um, and 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 once you, you know there is still a quite a lot of common ground. Mm. I mean, one shouldn't. I mean, there's a lot of polarisation. It's obviously magnified by social media and so on. Um, you know, you, you know, obviously social media gives a megaphone to relatively small groups. So we sometimes have the impression. I think that we're more polarised than we are. We. I mean, I'm not denying that we are polarised. We we do have these value divides, <clears throat> and we need to find ways of of finding common ground again, of finding some sort of settlement. You know, uh, po post Brexit, and I, and I think the kind of contours of it are reasonably clear, um, and it has to do with um, having having greater respect for the more settled part of our population. After all, this has been, I mean, you know, you know, these people are not militants. This is a very, def you know, populism is a defensive. Um, it's a defensive impulse. It is not, you know, this is not the 1930s. They're not sort of, we're not thinking about kind of invading Denmark. Um, you know, it, it, it's about holding on to something that people wanted, you know, which was a relatively stable life. And and, and I think politics will have to take that into account more. And it already is, it's already doing so. I and mean, with difficulty, it's true. But I mean, Brexit was essentially a somewhere policy that is now being implemented 
um, rather reluctantly by anywheres, um, both in the civil service and indeed in the you know the, you know seventy percent of the political class was 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 Remainer. But that sort of taps into the fear from mm. the um, from the somewheres that that all right they they made their point. They said this is what they want. They want. They mm. want. And now the fear is that the anywheres are not going to implement it, or if they do, yeah. they're not going to implement it properly, and they're going to fudge it. And, and my fear yeah. and Constantine's fear is that mm. if that happens, that then allows the depends how big the fudge is. I think. I mean, I mean, I think some degree no, of the, the, yeah. what Francis is talking about. Yeah. I was on LBC uh, a few days ago. And I said that I thought that, and we both voted Remain, by the way. Mm. We are yeah, your quintessential, so quintessential anyways. Good people. But every time I make that joke, <laughs> the internet explodes, <laughs> and someone's like, oh, "You fucking big you <laughs> prick." Anyway, sorry. Mm. Uh, but we are very much both of us now coming around to the position of those anywheres who've woken up. Yeah, yeah. And same and, here. I mean, and we are yeah, going. Yeah. Hold on a second. If Brexit isn't delivered. If mm. Brexit is seriously fudged, this is what I said on LBC. Oh, yeah. I said or, I or if we have a second vote, it could poison our politics for a generation. I agree. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I actually said on, on the program, I thought that if Brexit it doesn't get delivered, you could have a political movement in this country led by someone like Tommy Robinson with funding mm. from someone like Steve Bannon. Mm. And you already see it happening. Steve Bannon's already talking about Tommy Robinson being a British patriot mm. uh, and all this stuff is happening. And I got a lot of crap from both sides for saying that mm. on the radio. Oh, no, I mean, you, you, you could, will have 50 MPs even with first past the post, I think. I mean, if, really? if, we, if we really have uh, a Brexit in name only. However, having said that, I mean, I think there is also a strong case for having a degree of fudge because it was only 52-48. Uh, it was 52-48. And uh, so and I think, you know, you can't, you know, we don't want a winner-takes-all Brexit either. Hmm. Um, we don't want a kind of a, a really hard Brexit. But, I mean, there is, a, there is a kind of reasonable, there is respecting Brexit sufficiently without, you know, w w while taking into account the views of the 48 too. And, I mean, that, that's a very kind of difficult combination. I mean, that, that is partly why our own internal argument has been so difficult, let alone the negotiation with, with Brussels. Um, and people sort of say, "Oh, how awful it is!" But actually, this is what this is democracy. It's 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 a mess, but it's a democratic mess. It's an unavoidable democratic mess given the fifty-two forty-eight outcome. Um, and I think and I think and hope that we we will get some kind of deal that'll be sufficient. It won't be it won't be perfect. Um, there'll be grumbles on 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 both sides. But it, you know, we really do then have to get down to to sorting out these these internal differences of which Brexit was a kind of manifestation. And I think, um, you know, and, and Brexit, in a sense, will be the first step towards that sorting out. It does give us, it does allow us to repatriate some of our democratic accountability. And it allows us to, um, you know, to have a radical industrial policy if we want to. Now, there may be many arguments against having that, but we can do stuff now or after Brexit, we'll be able to do stuff that we couldn't before. Uh, and, and I hope a lot of that energy goes into, I mean, you know, the, the anywhere dominated political class has had a huge shock from Brexit. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, and we are doing, you know, we, we, we have a, you know apprenticeship levy. OK, uh, people criticise the way it's been implemented. You know, we have T levels. I mean, there is a recognition that we've got over over expanded higher education. You know, the ridiculous idea that 50 percent of, of kids go to, to it's not so much. Obviously, we need we need forms of post school education. Uh, I mean, uh, all, all developed countries have, uh, but we've gone for a very, very narrow um, classical university structure, three or four years, often um, uh, often sort of boarding, as I was saying, residential, um, you know, and even if you're, you know, even if you're doing a degree in construction management, you still spend half the time writing essays. I mean, so they are very, very academic. And like other countries have a much greater range of post-school institutions, you know, catering for a much greater range and, or a different range of functions and aptitudes and abilities. So, you know, the community colleges in America or the Fachhochschule in, in Germany and things like that. You know, we, we can, you know, I think we'll kind of probably move in that direction more, thinking, you know, worrying less about the pushing more and more kids to university. Um, I think levels of immigration will come down. They're already coming down, partly because of the uh, um, for the fall in sterling's made it less attractive economically for, for the for the kind of commuter immigrant to come here. Um, and um, and uh, you know and just 
what what we really need above all i think is uh, and what i hope will come from this is actually liberals becoming less illiberal mm. uh, you know liberals actually becoming more pluralistic accepting that there are other forms of life apart from their own sort of you know russell group university liberalism um and their sort of you know androgynous feminism whatever um that uh you know that, that other people live by different lights and they're not monsters uh that they they they, they have small c conservative views about a lot of things um, but they're, they're, they're decent people still. They're decent populists. I, I, I use the phrase decent populists in my book. And what I mean by that is basically people who've accepted the great liberalisation. They accept the idea of human equality. They, don't, they obviously don't think they have the same obligation to all humans in the world. You know, they, 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 they believe in their, you know, in, their, in their group, their country, and the interests of um, you know, national citizen rights before universal rights. They're not, so they're not liberals. But they, but they're, but they're, they're part of the, you know, modern, in a very broad sense, kind of liberal acceptance of human equality. Um, but they think that, that that society has not reflected their interests, and 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 they're often quite traditional, small C conservative interests. And I think the the interesting thing is that we've that politics, you know, the American political scientist Daniel Bell. Uh, who talked about he talked about it sometime back in the 1980s talked about his political credo uh, and he said he was a I'm editing slightly but he said he was a kind of market friendly social democrat in economics he was broadly liberal in politics and he was somewhat conservative in social and cultural matters oh. and that combination seems to me the kind of hidden majority in our societies in some ways and it's for all sorts of historical reasons the party political system has not not reflected that that combination um, although perhaps you might say the Tory manifesto of the last election probably came closer to it than, uh, than, than anything in recent politics. But it's sort of how, how we can kind of represent that hidden, hidden majority uh, in our political system, I think, is one of the, one of the things that will, will kind of emerge over the, next, over the next few years in the post-Brexit world. Francis, you've barely got a word in edgeways this interview, so why don't you do the last question? Okay, right, okay. So we are running out of time. So, David, what we like to finish up with is, um, is there one issue that people aren't talking about that should be talking about, that we should all be talking about? Something maybe that we gloss over, and why? Um... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do think the... Um, you know, Theresa May talked about her burning injustices, and I think in many cases she's, she um, she focused on very much the kind of Whitehall sort of liberal establishment burning injustices. I mean, the uh, you know gender pay gap. You know, but the gender pay gap is overwhelmingly the result of of the preferences expressed, the different preferences expressed um, by men and women. The fact that women, um, when they have young children, uh, overwhelmingly choose to work part time. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, I think there. Um, I mean, it's, there, there are serious injustices in some of the ways that um, are. Um, I mean, one of the biggest injustices, and I, and, I, and uh, I, it's very hard to know quite what to do about it. Although, in a, in a clumsy way, the Tory manifesto I just referred to would sort of had a kind of failed bash at it. The extraordinary. Uh, uh, um, I think. This is actually an economic thing in a way, rather than we've been talking mainly about cultural things. But the fact, the in, you know, the enormous unearned um, increase in wealth, uh, arbitrary unearned increase in wealth for people who happen to live, you know, in London, parts of the southeast, and little pockets of the rest of the country, as a result of the um, the increasing value of their houses. Um, is going to create down the road a real problem unless we find some fair way of kind of tapping into it. I mean, we, we've got you know 10 million people in this country are now um, you know wealthy. I mean, obviously a small slice of them are the kind of traditionally wealthy, but 10 million people who happen to own properties in the right part of the country are you know, unaccountably and unexpectedly rich. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, the whole issue of, in of inheritance is going to become really thorny one, I think, um, because it's a natural human impulse. You want to kind of hand on what you have to your children. Um, 
and you know, what, how we how we tap into that that wealth. Um, you know, without I mean, if I'm allowed a second one, I mean, I would say that, that it, which almost sort of conflicts with that first one, is the way in which um, modern family policy, I think, um, influenced very much by a kind of anywhere professional um, feminism, has really um, not placed enough effort on supporting young couples bringing up young children. Um, in, in much of continental Europe, you essentially, you know, if you're a young couple bringing up children, you essentially pay no tax or very little tax. Mm. Whereas here, we do not allow couples, and I don't think, it should, I don't think you should have to be married. I think the genie is out of the bottle on that. I think you know, anyone who can prove they've been cohabiting for a couple of years and they have a kid together um, should be able to share their tax allowances. I mean, that would make a huge difference. You know, we have, what are, you know, it's 12, 12 and a half thousand pounds. Um, you know, you can combine two people's tax allowances and you're already pretty much at the average wage. Um, and you know, we spend nine billion pounds on childcare, subsidizing childcare. You can't get a penny of that to look after your own child. You know, we do, uh, it's this anywhere public realm focus and, and much of, Contemporary feminism has, sort of, has adopted that similarly sort of public realm focus as a uh, as a measure of of equality. But there are millions of families who would, uh, you know, who uh, and and most most of us, most human beings in Britain, you know, most of the things that really matter to them are in the private realm, and and we're not doing nearly. And we have a we have a huge amount of family breakdown. We're not quite as bad as America, but we're worse than much of continental Europe. Um, you know, only less than half of 15-year-olds, I think, still live with their their two biological parents. Um, this is not a good state of affairs, and we've been and we've been too blasé about it. And uh, and I think you know it's a, a combination of of a certain sort of liberal individualist sort of squeamishness combined with certain you know a certain strand of modern feminism has has prevented us providing more support for young families when they really need it. Now, I mean, it's not only, uh, you know, people break up for all sorts of reasons, it's not just money, but money will often be behind conflict in, in a family. And, and we need, to, um, we need to, to do much more to help people stay together and, and, and bring up kids in a, in a secure uh, environment. I think this interview probably wins the award for the fewest questions that we've ever <laughs> asked. Sorry, uh, I talked too to much. No, down, that's great. Down to how articulate and eloquent you are on these issues. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming to well, talk to you. us. You are very active on Twitter, I notice, in, in battles uh, pretty much every day with different people. Uh, so if anyone wants to follow you on Twitter and, and be a kind of a, a peaceful observer to these battles, uh, you yeah. are on Twitter at... I am. Oh, gosh, what am I? I'm David underscore... Good heart. Is that? We'll, what we'll do that, is we'll double check yeah, it. Yeah, and if it's not that, we'll yeah, stick yeah, it yeah, in the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm definitely. David, is there something else? No. What, no. What, what, that sounds like a. I'm, I'm at David yeah. underscore Goodheart, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, also, is the book that you so fascinatingly the, talked about? Uh, it's called The Road to Somewhere. Yeah, The Road to Somewhere. Yeah. And, and we'll put a link to that as well. Yeah. And, and, I'm, you and I work and at I'm, the Policy Exchange. I work at Policy Exchange uh, Think Tank, and I'm, I'm doing another book um, uh, in the next year or so. Basically, on this theme of you know how smart people are too politically powerful. Well, come back and talk to us about yeah. that then yeah. Yeah. when All it's right. ready to go. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. And just to say uh, thank you very much, guys. If you've watched it, we hope you enjoy the show. Um, if you could uh, click subscribe, if you hit the bell button, which is on the right of the screen, that will keep you updated when we get all the videos. If you were listening to this on iTunes, um, please click subscribe. Uh, leave us a review. Say something nice. Um, five stars. Five or horrible, stars. Or horrible. Yeah, or horrible. No, no, please I spoke say, too much. Yeah. <laughs> but please say something nice. And if you're enjoying it and you really like it, um, tell a friend. Tell a friend about it, and um, like I said before, if you don't like someone, recommend it. And uh, yeah, and if you're not enjoying it, recommend it to someone you don't like. All right, <laughs> okay. But it's been great. Thanks very much, and we'll see you all. Listen, all yep. See you next week. See bye you bye. Next week.
Wells Fargo presents one of the surest ways to grow your money. A Wells Fargo CD account where you can earn a 5.00% annual percentage yield on an 11-month term with a minimum opening deposit of $5,000. Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com backslash CD rates to open a CD account and start growing your savings with us. Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Hello, Saver. Whether you're saving for that trip to the tropics or saving for an emergency, now is the time to take advantage of Wells Fargo's savings options. Wells Fargo offers savings accounts that can help you save towards your goals. So, what are you saving for? Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com backslash save to open a savings account today. Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.